On this episode of the Parlay in All Blue, power, history, and culture collide. And yes, again, we're going to hit voting because voting is the first step. It is an essential tool to building wealth and retaining and obtaining and retaining power in the United States. So this power, our voting power, and by our, I'm talking about black people now, is under attack. How's it being attacked? It's being attacked by Republican legislatures in the states of Louisiana and Alabama. You see, they're going after Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which says that giving a minority group, i.e. black people, less opportunity than others, i.e. white people, to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice is a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Let me give you a a real illustration. The state of Alabama is 25% black. Alabama has seven congressional districts. Only one is considered majority black. The state is 25% black in population, is 14% black in terms of its representation in Congress. The state of Louisiana is 33% black. It has six congressional districts. It only has one that is majority black, which means that it's 33% of its black population is represented by 16% of the seats in Congress. Again, all of this about voting and everything else, whether it's direct attacks on voting through legislation or getting people to not care about voting is about retaining wealth and power. Those of you who listen to the show are already with it, so I'm giving you this information to pass the show on to someone else who may not know or so that you can have a conversation with them. At the end of the day, voting and political power and this participation is about building wealth and obtaining power. That's it, point blank, period. Louisiana's Creole people, their history, culture, and assertive use of political power can inform black people of today on how to build coalitions across racial and ethnic lines to ensure that we are not erased historically or politically. Because there's another component of this too, which we are going to touch on a little bit in this episode, is that by the year 2045, the United States will be for the first time a non-majority white country. Meaning, all of this stuff about the border crisis and what have you is trying to stop and slow down the blackening and browning of America. That's all of this is about. This is about political power. Understand that at the end of the day. Fortunately, Dr. Wendy Godin of Xavier of Louisiana, which is a historically black college in New Orleans, joins us. She is a historian who specializes in race and racial mixture, critical race theory, and Creole history. She will give us insight into Creole culture, its history, and insights into how we Black people can fight across racial and ethnic lines to ensure that we are not erased historically and not erased politically. 
all of this on this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you for listening. To support the show, like it, download it, subscribe, share it with other people, talk about it with other people, and act. The other way that you can support us, we have links on all of our social media feeds. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. This show runs off of coffee and books. If we don't buy coffee, we will buy books. Thank you again for supporting us, and we appreciate you listening to The Parlay in All Blue. Dr. Wendy Godin, welcome to The Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for having me. How are you? Thank you for being here and thank you for asking. Today, we are recording on my birthday. So, uh, oh, <laughs> happy birthday. Thank you. I, I'm, <laughs> doing, I'm doing well today. And um, I have to tell you that I am in a phase of life. And the work that we do here on the podcast is such that anytime when I was in corporate and it's my birthday and we are, you know, in the in the late afternoon on a Friday of my birthday and I'm still working. So that must mean that I enjoyed this work and I'm happy to have you. Thank you. Listen, the United States is projected to have a population that is no longer majority white by the year 2045. That's 22 years away from now. I believe all of the anti-immigration rhetoric and laws, anti-CRT rhetoric and laws, even things that are not necessarily racialized, but I think the pushback on women's reproductive rights, the aggressive laws that are restricting uh, voting and access to the polls, the ongoing pushback around using race as a criteria for admissions into higher education, and then this latest slate of both the state of Alabama and the state of Louisiana trying to limit who can be identified as Black, I believe that all of that is aimed at uh, and, and preempting and cementing in the law minority rule, or sort of being able to still have, while having a non-white majority from a population standpoint, but still having a strong and firm control on the infrastructure of power. Now, I did not see the pushback on or the the fight to define, narrowly define who can identify as Black coming, again, from the states of Louisiana and, and Alabama. And for those listening, just Google Louisiana Limits who can define as Black in Supreme Court or Alabama, you'll see it there. But understand that this is about the Voting Rights Act. And if you understand voting, understand that's about power and wealth and cultural control and everything else. Now, you, fortunately, as a historian and scholar at what I consider to be one of the finest universities in America, Xavier, Louisiana, who specializes in race, and racial mixture in the Americas, along with critical race theory 
and Creole history can help sort some of this out for us. Not all of it. You don't have to. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> 2045 for us, but you can help us look at because I believe mm-hmm. that Louisiana's unique history and I think the history of the Creole people can inform what we're experiencing today and perhaps give us a way to to move forward. So with that, why don't we start with who are the Creole people and um, what is their origin? Okay, well, I think that's a great place to start. (laughs) So I would say that Creoles are Technically, we are an indigenous people to the Americas, not in the same sense that the first people uh, are, of course, indigenous. But what I mean is that Creole people didn't exist before certain historical developments. Creole people didn't come to Louisiana or come to the United States from somewhere else. Uh, We originated here out of a number of uh, historical developments. One of them is uh, European colonization, and I would say especially French colonization in the Americas, which was a very (laughs) male-generated practice, and that I think that's, that's relevant. And the other would be the uh, displacement and dispossession of uh, indigenous people in the Americas uh, and their uh, efforts to uh, defend their land and to to defend their own autonomy. That is part of our Creole uh, origin. And then the third would be the African diaspora which, as we know, is an involuntary 400-year-long forced migration of many, many ethnic groups from primarily West Africa, but not exclusively West Africa. Um, Many of the, the unfortunate folks who were forced to come to the Americas uh, were from Central Africa, some were from South Africa, uh, and we also know that there was a pretty vibrant migration across the African continent during the slave trade and before. And so um, we have all of these different uh, persons of different ethnicities from the African continent coming to the Americas. And one of those places is Louisiana. So when you have predominantly ma- male uh, French settler colonials, um, and then you have indigenous people who were already here. This is their autonomous territory. And then you have the importation of a very uh, diverse population of African people. You are bound to get some kind of amalgamation. And that amalgamation could be, well, it was uh, cultural um, you know, we, we tend to sort of think about this as, oh, uh, people have m- mixed marriages or interracial relationships or something like that. Of course, much of this was also sexual violence, the product of sexual violence. But it's a broader understanding of 
colonialism. That is the amalgamation that takes place when these different populations meet in the Americas and and for uh, for our purposes in Louisiana, and you get a a blending of languages. You get a blending of religions, uh, creolized languages, creolized religions. New food practices arise out of this amalgamation. Manners, how people address each other, who they respect, how they honor the dead and how they bury the dead. All of these, these practices that arise in Louisiana are sort of a, a, an amalgamation of many different people's traditions. Mm-hmm. And they arise out of a particular context of conflict, of settlement, of uh, enslavement and the resistance uh, to enslavement. And within that context, you have people having children with women having children with all kinds of other people of other ethnic groups. And that happens one generation after another. And then we also have a history of sort of colonial chess um, happening in the Americas. So Louisiana, uh, before the French period, of course, it was um, indigenous autonomous land. Then it becomes a French colony, then a Spanish colony, and then it trades back to the French, and then it becomes a U.S territory. And so you have then the migration of uh, Spaniards, the in-migration of Cubans of various backgrounds, Mm -hmm. Hondurans of various backgrounds, German immigrants, Canary Islanders, who we we refer to as Isleños here in Louisiana. Uh, You have the in-migration of Acadians, who we now call Cajuns. And all of these people are existing in an environment uh, sometimes of lawlessness, sometimes of, of creativity, of resistance. And out of that, you get populations that are culturally, ethnically, and, and we can say even racially mixed. Yeah. Yeah. So... That was perfect, and I, I want to make sure that I'm keeping up. So if I'm if I'm hearing you, is that really the terms black, white, Indian, even and Creole are creations of the New World, right? Like before colonialism, there were Natchez and Cherokee and Asante and Congolese and French and what have you, and sort of we get here and. There's the mixture of all of those very rich cultures and people and sort of biology or DNA and what have you that gets the category of Creole. But then in good old either American or Western colonial fashion, then we get white, black and Indian. (laughs) But in Louisiana, we have a racial mixture of category, which is Creole. So that's a definition. Why was it important for the for Louisiana, the the colony or the French to define have those racial categories of white, Creole, black? Why why did they need to do that? 
Well, I would say that Creole people are sort of the, um, I don't want to say organic because I wouldn't call uh, enslavement or colonialism organic. Yeah. But what I would say is that out of these, these created contexts, these contexts that, that colonization and enslavement, out of those contexts came a vastly varied population that um, in some ways uh, defies or challenges racial categories. But racial categories are not really meant to honor realities. Racial categories are not meant to honor uh, people's pride or, or to represent an actual uh, descent or an actual ancestry of a people. Racial categories are, are meant to define people in very simplistic ways in order to assign characteristics, to assign fates <laughs> to some populations and different characteristics and different fates to other populations. And really importantly in this is the assignment of power. So when you have very simple categories, a very simple racial binary, you know, you're either one thing or the other thing, then it's much easier to then say, these people uh, have access to certain kinds of power and these other people have access to uh, very little or no power at all. It's very easy to create a society that is made up of the empowered and the powerless, or the, I would like to say the empowered and the, those who resist mm -hmm. their disempowerment. But I think that what happens with Creoles is that when we have this, this idea of a simple racial binary, and then, but we have people in Louisiana who are, you know, part this or part that, or they're people who are like Islenos, the people from the Canary Islands, came in many shades and they were many, many different uh, expressions of, of that ethnicity. You know, so when you get to Louisiana and you see, okay, there are all of these different uh, shades of people, different languages being spoken, different self-expressions, but then we have this idea that, okay, you're either in this category or you're in that category. So Creoles were one population among many that complicates this simplistic idea of uh, a racial binary. And so that binary is then a, it's applied to Creole people in ways that uh, are challenging. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I and I and I think it's important, at least for me, when I'm thinking about this, is to you have to separate sort of French colonialism versus what the English did, because that same mix could happen in Virginia, but the English didn't come up with a different sort of set of categorizations. The uh, in the English, uh, so Virginia, Maryland, the Carolinas, there was the one drop rule, right? Like if you got some black, you just black, right? <laughs> but 
in Louisiana, we have something different. And and so are people who are Creole, um, were they enslaved or no, or did they have different sort of rights? Okay. So, okay. So I would say that the, I want to go back just to the one drop idea. And yeah. that is that the, the idea of hypo descent or that quote unquote, one drop of black blood, it sort of curses your life in a way, at least from the point of view of the, the white supremacist government that created this kind of false identity and false way of defining people. It was sort of a, a curse that any uh, visible admixture, any amount of African blood or black blood in quotes, that it, it basically limits your life in ways that one drop of white blood certainly doesn't uh, open your life to every privilege possible. And if that's one way that we know that, that this one drop is a, is a mythology and it's an, an invention. And I would agree with you that it is not necessarily unique to Anglo-America, but Anglo-America is really where this rule of hypo-descent um, comes into its fullest fruition. Now, to, to, to get back to your second question, Creole is not a, a category that only refers to enslaved people or only refers to free people. Okay. Um, Creole people are an ethnic group. And as an ethnic group, it means that we could exist within all class categories. There are uh, landless uh, Creole people, rural hunters, gathers, trappers who are Creole. There are governors and mayors and people of power who are Creole. Uh, enslaved people could also be Creole. So Creole is the ethnicity that comes out of this history of all of these different people meeting each other and, and making this, this strange place that we call Louisiana. And so there, there could be Creole people of uh, predominantly African descent, uh, Creole people of predominantly European descent, Creole people of mixed heritage. All of those were possible uh, and all of those categories for Creoleness existed, enslaved and free, rich, poor, um, quote unquote, dark skinned or light skinned or however we want to describe people. So it's an ethnic group, mm -hmm. not necessarily a, a, a social category or a race. Got it. Race is later applied to Creole people in different ways. Okay. So, so thank you for that. And, um, what would be some markers, some cultural markers of Creole people? So if we, so so you you've already thrown me off because now we we've, we've got that, and I'm joking. You're doing great in ethnicity and then race. So we're separating those things out. We're also separating out something that I have to say that most people will, if you're not in, if you're not from Louisiana. And did not grow up in this, or did don't understand it. You're really talking about dark skin and light skin. Light skin people are Creole, but you're just saying that that's not even the 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 case. So so give me some what what are some things that are unique culturally to Creoles? Mm -hmm. Okay, so 
Yes, I I emphasize this in my Creole Louisiana course and, and other courses that I teach that Creole is not a skin color, okay. that Creoles come in every shade. <laughs> there is this notion and this sense that Creole, a, a person of a, a person of color who's light skinned in Louisiana and especially in New Orleans, that is a Creole. That is not a correct definition. Right. Um, so Creoles tend to be historically, at least historically, we are uh, Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we inherited that from the French and later from the Spanish. Creole people speak some version of French. Uh, there's Creole French. There's Cajun French. There's uh well, I don't know what the term, the what, f- continental French or European French, French French. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm not a linguist, so I'm not sure what that term is. I got it. Okay. And then there are the different kinds of French that people um, learned and created in different ways, you know, in, in indigenous communities, um, in the German community, different kinds of um, creolized languages emerged. Okay. okay? So we also, uh, there's a, traditionally among Creoles, there is a uh, seafood-based diet because of our geographic location, a heavily rice-based diet because of the cultivation of rice in Louisiana. And in part, the cultivation of rice here was meant to feed um, enslaved people in the Caribbean, because in Caribbean societies, food production was not uh, primary. It was all about producing sugarcane or something to make a profit. So our diet is is heavily a seafood based, heavily rice uh, as a foundation. Creoles also tend to have a sense of middleness, you know, that there is something about Creoles that defines us as a middle kind of category, uh, maybe sort of an other category, that we are different in the United States. And uh, many people think that Creoles have more of a Caribbean kind of uh, culture, Caribbean kind of sensibility. Creoles also uh, tend to be rather insular. Traditionally, we tend to uh, associate with other Creoles. Our ancestors often chose other Creoles to have families with. There is a history of, well, I guess today we would call an an arranged marriage, or there's a a history of uh, parents choosing their their children's um, spouse to keep certain qualities within the family. And... I know that oftentimes that is read as light-skinned people uh, marrying and choosing other light-skinned people so the children will be light-skinned. And if you don't mind, I would like to say a couple of things about that. Oh, please do. No, I don't mind. Okay, because it's very common. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> okay. That's one of the... That is actually one of the things I'm glad you're, you're, you're diving into because I think it's important to clear up. Yes, so one thing I would say about that is that I'm sure that there were some people who wanted very much to 
keep their um, their hair or their facial features or their skin color in a certain way to perpetuate those uh, that that kind of phenotype in their children. So on the one hand, that did exist. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there is a real context of whiteness and a real context of the wages, the social and the economic wages that are associated with whiteness. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, Creoles are not exceptions to the rule when highlighting and, and elevating whiteness, because that is what that is American. That is what we do in the United States. So some Creoles certainly uh, submitted to that kind of thinking. And then um, another thing I wanted to say about that is that I want to bring up my my grandparents are a very good example of this, that my my grandmother, my paternal grandmother and my paternal grandfather, they, uh, you know, loved each other, got married, had a very long, happy marriage. And when I talked to them about that, I recall my grandmother saying, well, you know, your grandfather was from the country. He was different from us. His accent was different. Um, he's brown skinned, but he's still Creole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So me wanting to marry someone Creole doesn't mean I want to marry someone light skinned. Yeah. It means I want to marry someone who shares my culture, who's Catholic, who um, who was raised with the similar values than me, whether or not that person was of any particular skin color. So in that way, Creoles are very similar to other ethnic groups and other cultures yeah. wanting to, right, wanting to share your life with someone who shares your culture. And it tends to be interpreted as light-skinned people wanting to keep the light skin in the family. And that's true of some, but that's not a rule. Yeah. So so a couple of things that I've uh, picked up in my travel, especially my travels, especially in Latin America and into Brazil, is that we always have to deal with not just in the United States, but in the Americas, the closer to whiteness is also the closer to power and wealth and a whole lot of other things. And then after even after enslavement ends, Brazil's last in, I think, 1888, you have uh, Puerto Rico, Cuba, uh, Brazil, all actively trying to recruit Europeans to sort of whiten their sort of population. So we get that. And anybody, listen, if you look at the CEOs in the Fortune 500 or the United States Senate or the presidents of the Ivy League, you will see that that whiteness does carry a certain amount of currency. But what I hear you describing is also something that I think people can relate to is when you're talking about, especially marriage and family, you're talking about culture. I know black people, Mississippi, that's, I'm from Chicago, but you know, Mississippi is where I, where I went to school. And so I have a lot, I have a close kinship with Mississippians. There are Mississippians who like, I want my kids to marry a Southerner. I don't want to marry somebody from the North, you know, Detroit or whatever you. I know people, Irish people who want to marry Irish people. So I get the cultural, yes. the cultural piece of it. Now I want to, I want to pause there because I do want to come back to the power 
component of it. But I do want to stick on one thing because I think this is lost. And certainly we were talking beforehand, before we, we started recording, is that in my uh, preparation for this, I noticed that the Creole population in Louisiana is heavy in artisans starting businesses, heavy in terms of uh, what we would call, um, what my mother would call striver values or uh, upper middle class values in terms of music lessons and valuing dance and that kind of thing. Talk to me a little bit about sort of um, Creole contributions to American sort of life that we wouldn't necessarily get because oftentimes it may be racialized, right? So I will pick one like Jelly Roll Morton is is a seminal figure in jazz. The racial thing is going to say he's black and that's it, but he's Creole. And he will say it. I mean, in his uh, Smithsonian interviews and all of those things, he's, he, he identifies as Creole. But beyond sort of the music, the artisans and business people, heavy in Louisiana there. Yes. And, and I think that, that that has something to do with the history of colonialism and the history of uh, racial slavery. That is that that history creates this need um, in society, economically, especially, but also socially, it creates this need for specialized um, crafts, uh, specialized kinds of fields. And for enslaved people, of course, enslaved people were also extremely talented artists and artisans and um, and creators uh, in their own right, but in a in a in a slave society, there is the sense that enslaved people are meant to cultivate the cash crop and do very little else. Mm-hmm. And then you have the uh, propertyed class at the top, uh, the owning uh, class, and their role in society is also rather limited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's this middle that's very rich. Mm-hmm. And so you have the element of the middle that uh, are people who, for example, in Louisiana, people who specialize in uh, brick in brick laying, uh, people who were plasterers, people who they built the, uh, the monuments in cemeteries, not, not just like uh, headstones, but this, b- these beautiful ornamented, uh, monuments um, in in the 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 above ground cemeteries that we have to build here in Louisiana because we're below uh, sea level. You have women who are uh, seamstresses, who are lace makers, women who free women of color who made lace, who uh, ran businesses in order to fulfill this sort of middle this middle ground between the ultra powerful who don't contribute. Uh, much to society at all, and then the disempowered majority who would contribute so much more to society without the legal limitation of enslavement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of makes sense that in many societies that are heavily, heavily dependent on an exploited labor force, mm-hmm. you have the flower of the middle mm-hmm. where people have the space to be to be musicians to be artisans 
Homer Plessy's parents, Homer Plessy, the, the you know, the, the person who, uh, with, of course, with an organization behind him, sure. brought the case of, of Plessy versus Ferguson, which challenged this notion of separate being unequal. And Plessy's case also tried to challenge the racial designation laws, which, which said that a state like Louisiana can define a person's race and then define all of their fate all of the things that are available to them based on that one category. And Plessy versus Ferguson found that segregation was, was fine. It was legal. Um, and it was overturned later, of course. That was in 1896. And Plessy versus Ferguson also found that the states have a right to define a person's race and to create racial categories. And that was one of Plessy's arguments, that Louisiana doesn't have a right to create a a category and then shove me into it. And the finding was, yes, Louisiana does have a right to do that. But Plessy's uh, parents, one, his his father was a carpenter, a skilled uh, craftsman, and his mother was a seamstress. Mm -hmm. And many of us, my grandparents, my Grandmother was a seamstress. My paternal grandmother was a seamstress. So was my maternal. And um, my paternal grandfather was a master carpenter. Many of us come from the middle group that were skilled uh, entrepreneurs, people of some education, and people with some kind of artist um, training. And that comes from the privilege of being in the middle in a society that exploits the majority. Yeah. Um, and I want to uh, just emphasize for, for the listeners and especially for, for me, the listener <laughs> and as for young listeners as well, is that when you're talking about carpenters, seamstress, brick masons, you know, people that are doing those types of crafts while Today, they may be defined as just sort of commodity labor. At that point, at one point in a sort of pre-industrial economy, those are highly skilled, middle-class jobs. So I want to make sure that's there. Definitely. I'm glad you mentioned Homer Plessy because he's one of the more interesting figures in American history for me. But that period of what we know is uh, Reconstruction, uh, after the period of, of bondage and, and enslavement has been outlawed or what have you, is for me the first period of Black power in the United States. And I don't think we can have, I don't think, and listen, you all can do the work afterwards, but we don't get to a Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks without sort of the resistance and activity and organized activity of Creole and Black Louisianans. Now, I want to stick again on the Creole portion of this because the laws around Louisiana and Alabama's narrowing of who defines as Black, because what they're trying to do is say, well, you can't be black and white. That was Alabama sort of thing. Yes, you can't click both boxes. I want to say that Louisiana's is broader. 
of where you're talking about somebody who's an immigrant and I'm from Panama and I identify as Afro-Panamanian. They want to say, well, you got to be Latino, but you can't be Latino and black. So they're really trying to narrow, uh, force people to choose, probably in hopes that they'll choose again the categories that are closest to whiteness to limit black power. That's 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 the way I read that. But why were people like Charles Rudinet, who was an editor of a newspaper and what who I would say is somebody who was about that life of fighting for liberation uh, through his newspaper and speaking out? Uh, you mentioned Homer Plessy. Um, um, I don't know Governor Pinchback's sort of uh, things, but he's always identified, ironically, in this case, as one of the first black governors. And when you look at this man, and I know it's not just about, he's a Creole. Now, having said that, why were people like Rudinay and Homer Plessy and the Creoles who were organizing on sort of the first um, streetcar uh, protest about having to ride in separate cars and all of those things. Why were Creole people so assertive in uh, what I would call civil rights and what we now term as black liberation? Why were why were some of those Creole people uh, very um, very involved in that? Yes, so I would say I personally feel that there are many many reasons. One is that. Many Creoles in Louisiana and, and particularly in New Orleans, many came from a family history of literacy and a family history of uh, formal education. And so that gives some folks the opportunity to uh, articulate themselves in one way. And of course, there are many ways of articulating ourselves. So I don't want to say that this is the best way or the only way. So many um, Creoles had that history and that encouragement um, of writing and using the written word to express themselves. And so it makes sense that some of the Creole uh, contribution is in journalism. It also makes sense that some of the Creole contribution is in the arts because we have that you know, we have that history and that background as well. Um, of course, there are some Creoles who identified with their African ancestry. And just because a Creole is of mixed heritage, that does not mean that they necessarily emphasized their European ancestry more than their African ancestry. And so there is a sense that some Creoles had a strong sense of pride in, in Blackness and pride in what their African ancestry gave to them. There's also the undeniable fact that the revolution in, in Haiti uh, at the time, it was a, you know, a colony called Saint-Domingue, that revolution was the most remarkable event in the history of the Americas for hundreds of years. And from that uh, revolution, we have this mass migration from, of, of people from Haiti to other parts of the, of the Americas, and New Orleans was one of them. So this revolutionary spirit 
comes out of Haiti and arrives in, in New Orleans and then spreads out throughout the territory. And so that tie that we have to, um, to Haiti helps us also understand the courage that some Creole people had to uh, work toward Black liberation. And then many others probably, like in any movement, many others uh, kept quiet and, <laughs> and um, just tried to survive because, of course, uh, practicing resistance is always dangerous in, in a society in which power is held by the few. And of course, those people also are armed. Yeah, no, no doubt. And I'm glad you mentioned Haiti because I think Haiti really informs uh, this sort of 2045 question and what we're having because we are talking about immigration and migration. And we are also talking about people who both African and free people of color uh, and Haitian Creoles and white people who are coming from Haiti into Louisiana and bringing ideas of of sort of of what it means to have power and lose it, but also what it means to build coalitions uh, to um, to change the balance of power. One of the things that I think is important for this twenty forty five question for me is again because it's really I think targeting mixed race people to choose. Again, you mentioned that Homer Plessy was was backed by a group, right? It's a group, it's a mixed race group of of people there in Louisiana that were tra- challenging and pushing for civil rights. How were those um how were those bonds formed um and and how can that help us as we move forward? Because for me, for someone who is uh, Creole or Afro-Puerto Rican or uh, Afro, Afro-Brazilian and you're coming to this country, we're kind of going to be getting the same things. Because what I tell people about some of this in America, you know, when a person is mixed race, I'm like, what do the cops think that person is? What does the admission counselor person think think that person is? And And that shouldn't be it. But that's the reality of it. So what can the um, cooperation there in the 1800s, the mixed race cooperation, how can that inform what we're doing here or need to do? Oh, okay. So I I have many thoughts on this, and I'm really glad that you asked this, because when I teach race, I often um, emphasize to my students that that we can view race from many different perspectives, not just the color of one's skin. So, you know, for example, race can be um, defined by phenotype and by um, how other people recognize us, you know, like our quote unquote, our street race, you know, if we're out in the world, how do people recognize us? And that's going to depend on who the people are. So, um, and it depends on their perspective and their background. So we're not necessarily always going to be seen in the same ways when we are in public. Mm-hmm. Race is also defined by um, our our own ancestry, our own teaching. So 
we can actually exist with many identities. Mm -hmm. So one could be how my students view me. If my students define me in one way, that's great. And then how I define myself can be based on how my parent, what my parents taught me and what identity I've inherited. And then the U.S. government can define me in yet another way. So the categories that we are sort of shoved into when we fill in the fill in the bubble or check the box, that's only one way of defining ourselves. So this whole idea of you're either Latino, Latina, Latinx, or you're Black um, is a complete contradiction when it get when we get to actual people and how they define themselves. It also is a complete contradiction of the history of Latin America, which used enslaved labor and free Black labor as well. So to say that you're either one or the other is is um is a it's a it's actually violent um but i would say also that we can be inspired by these coalitions of the past by remembering something other than race so if we if we hold race in our hand and accept it uh and begin with that because it's a it's a reality uh in in the ways the, the you know the policies that are that that govern our nation it's a fiction but it's it's grounded in actual actions mm -hmm. and policies mm -hmm. so if we hold that in our hands then maybe we can remember other things like class that our our society is a deeply you know class based society and if we remember that we have power when we hold race in our hands, I'm not saying ignore race. Mm -hmm. I'm saying hold it and recognize it for what it is and then reach beyond it to see that we can actually grow as a society when we see class as one of the foundations of our society that we are exploited, black, brown, and beige, and white. <laughs> All of us, immigrant, non-immigrant, racially mixed, non-racially mixed, you know, racially monoracial, we are all exploited. And so I think many of those coalitions that you're referring to of the 19th century mm -hmm. used class as a way to see that we can work together in order to overcome racial segregation and it took decades to overcome racial segregation and you know later um i'm not sure if you were going to ask about this but later in the 20th century you know we have dutch morial yeah. who was a creole from new orleans yeah. who is also called the first black mayor of new orleans we have norman c francis who was the president of, of xavier university for over 40 years a uh, Creole from from um, the Lafayette area. We have A.P. Turo, who was a Creole, who was also a civil rights attorney in the 20th century. So we also have mixed heritage Creoles in that second that second civil rights movement of the 20th century. Yeah. So we're we're engaged, but the Creoleness 
it seems to be less important because who cares about your ethnicity? What really matters is your race, mm -hmm. right? That's really what matters in American society. Who cares if you're Afro, like you said, mm -hmm. Afro-Puerto Rican? Hey, we only care about which box, <laughs> which is the simplest box you can check. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And listen, that box has a lot of implications. At, at the end of the day, we all want to eat it at least decently. We all want to have decent housing. We all, all want to have, you know, access to health care. And so many times safety, well, safety. Yes. Yes. And, and, and all of that in America has back to that retaining power has been the closest either you white and as close as you can get to white the better. But the thing is, is that just being a little better than what a a pure African person is getting, a pure black person born in America is not a good deal, right? That's is that's not that's I mean, you you gotta you gotta look at it like that. Let me ask you why uh, or how did you get interested in this work? Why is this work important to you? Oh gosh. Well I am um I am a Creole myself and I am actually a product of a diaspora that is part of the Great Migration in U.S. history. Many thousands of Creole Louisiana families moved to, well, some moved to Chicago, some moved to Houston, some moved to San Francisco, and some moved to Los Angeles. And I am a product of the Los Angeles migration. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, when I was a child growing up in, in the suburbs of, of Los Angeles, I would go to my grandparents' house on the weekend and eat uh, boudin and gumbo and meliton and uh, the foods that we eat here in Louisiana. I would hear my grandparents make references to New Orleans and uh, they would come for Mardi Gras and bring back, bring back, you know, trinkets for us. And so I knew that um, or going to my uncle Aubrey's barber shop mm -hmm. and listening to all the men in the barber shop talk about uh, New Orleans, I knew that my family was different, mm -hmm. and I knew that we were from Louisiana, but I really didn't understand it deeply because it wasn't really consciously taught to me. And so, also, I was challenged in different ways. Um, growing up in Southern California, asked, "What are you?" Um, are you mixed? Are you black? Are you what? What are you? People would see my mother and myself. My mother and I look very alike, except she's lighter skinned than me and she doesn't have curly hair. And people would say, oh, you know, are you adopted? You know, is your mom white? And as a child, I actually was uh, disturbed by those questions. I didn't know how to answer them. And so as I got older, I really wanted to understand who am I? What are we? Uh, when I learned that we were Creole, I didn't have any idea what that meant. And so much of my, uh, my academic history and my history of learning has to do with understanding myself as a diasporic Creole. And so I went to undergrad in California at Cal State Northridge I got my bachelor's degree. My father was a biology professor there mm -hmm. and I got my degree in history. And then um, I got my master's at LSU and my PhD at NYU, where I really focused much more on 
uh, theories about race and really trying to understand how mixed heritage people grapple with um, the erasure of being of mixed heritage. You know, there in many ways we are erased and in many ways we are told, well, you can't be both black and mixed mm-hmm. or you, you certainly can't be white and mixed. Uh, and, you know, so the idea of us having space for multiple self-definitions and especially those of us who are maybe more racially fluid, mm-hmm. I wanted to really understand that. So I studied history, I studied the South, I studied race, and then I came to New Orleans to conduct my research for my PhD. And while I was here doing research, I was living on a fellowship. And my father actually said to me, you know, you might want to get a job teaching, get some experience, make some money. And I interviewed for a position at Xavier. I had never been to an HBCU. I had never been to Xavier. And when I got the job, I called my grandfather and he said, oh, my brother went to school there. And I didn't even know that my, my great uncle was a Xavier graduate. And so I've, I've been at Xavier ever since, really proud to teach at a historically uh, Black university that's also um, founded by a Catholic None, so we have a, a, a different kind of history as well. And I am not a legacy. I didn't graduate from there, but I claim it uh, in the name of my my uncle, my great uncle Earl Godin. Yeah, yeah. And but you've been there twenty two years. Okay, so listen, you you can, uh, <laughs> you can absolutely claim it at at that point. That's 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 quite uh, quite some time. You are working on a book, or maybe it's out, I don't know, or coming out. Uh, It's not out yet. Okay, all right. Diasporic Creole, A Chronicle of New Orleans and Beyond. What is that uh, book going to be about? Well, the book is, I'm hoping that the, uh, the subtitle is actually, I'm hoping that we will agree on coming home to Louisiana, because I feel very strongly that that's really what um, this book is about. And this book is about my, uh, my family, my family's origins here, hundreds of years present here in Louisiana, and uh, my grandparents moving to California during the Jim Crow era and, and why they chose to leave their ancestral home. All four of my grandparents migrated to California. Uh, and then my return to Louisiana and the, uh, the field work and the research that I conducted here, most of it in, in the form of oral histories. Of course, I did a lot of archival research as well, but I spent a lot of time in people's living rooms, uh, at their kitchen table, in their churches talking to them about what Creole meant for them and what were their impressions of California Creoles and how did they, how did they define themselves in this, this state where Creole means many things and they grapple with, you know, the violence associated with race. 
And so, um, yes, so the, the, hopefully the title, the official title is Diasporic Creole Coming Home to Louisiana. Uh, it's currently under review with LSU Press and, um, hopefully, uh, it will be out in 2024, but fingers crossed. Well, I, I'm looking forward to, to that book, uh, coming out. Uh, and, and thank we, you. Before we, wrap up and we get to some some uh other some lighter questions i do have to go back to one sticky point yes what is colorism mm-hmm. colorism is the preferencing of um of white proximity or the preferencing of lighter lighter skin within a group or within a population. So it's, it's, a, it's when people within a population preference the skin color that either is, prox, you know, is close to whiteness or it's close to whoever has power. <laughs> so colorism uh, can exist in different ways, in different um, societies, it's mostly the product of uh, colonialism. And so in any community, if people give sort of, you know, privileges or give preference to those who are closer to whiteness or closer to those who are in power. Yeah. That is, that is a definition of, of colorism. Why are you asking that? Well, so listen, because... I believe that in addition to America's long history of anti-Black violence and uh, legalized anti-Black sort of oppression, I believe that colorism can be, if we don't actually name it, define it, and get rid of it, be as big a stumbling block of any as anything else in terms of really doing what needs to be done to build unity within, I'm racializing Black now, not the ethnic part of Creole, racializing Black folks, but also building coalitions across sort of other ethnic bounds. Again, like I said, Afro-Latinas would be a thing. I think that colorism seems to be a big stumbling block in Latin America, and I can see how over the next 22 years, non-well-meaning people will use that as a tool to prevent sort of any sort of unity that like sort of Homer Plessy and that group of people in New Orleans had. I, I think it's important that we, we call it out and know what it is. Yes, I, I think that, you know, colorism is, is, a, is a poison that was introduced by you know, through cultural hegemony by Western Europeans. And, you know, it exists in different, in different ways. You know, it's funny that one of the things that comes to my mind is it's sort of outside of our frame, but traveling and you've traveled a lot. So, you know, that skin bleaching is very common in other countries. And when I was traveling in Vietnam, I noticed that people, when they're outdoors, they cover cover everything yeah. to not um, get, you know, sunburned or, or dark. And someone said to me, well, that has to do with uh, class, that people who work indoors, 
their skin is protected. And so a darker skin color means you're of the lower class and you work outdoors. And that was sort of a, uh, an interpretation and understanding of lightness of skin in a place where the vast majority of the people are brown. But I agree with you that it's really a poison and that, that it, it's insidious. And it is it is a block. There are so many blocks to progress, and I I am all for overcoming those those blocks. At least in my field, which is in education. So, teaching at an HBCU is a wonderful opportunity for me to learn from my students uh, their impressions of of colorism, and they've even used the term texturism, which is a prejudice toward straighter textured hair. Um, and I learned so much from my students about their experiences of colorism, of, of, of prejudice. And so we get to educate each other. And um, if I can teach uh, my students about the history of race and especially how people of African descent turned a racial category that was meant to demean them. Yes. They turned that into a category that that emphasizes beauty and talent and creativity and flexibility and intelligence and all of these wonderful things. Um, that that is that is remarkable. And so, if I can convey that history of resistance and that history of turning something deeply violent into something that's empowering, I feel like I'm, I'm doing something important. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And I, I think it's important too. And uh, something that you said, this was something that was heaped on, upon all of us, upon the world uh, by Western European colonialists. And they didn't do it. There was a, there was an Afro-Mexican filmmaker and activist who was on our show, his name's Abad Leva, and he said, colonization has not been an act of love. And I think we always have to understand that all of these things that we we deal with, it wasn't done out of, you know, making this better. It was done done in, in, in a destructive manner. Now, I want to pull away from that and encourage everyone to get Dr. Godin's book when it comes out and to, as always, I always say that a podcast is definitely doesn't replace study. Neither does a documentary or anything like that. Only study replaces study. And the only other thing as a part of study is talking to people, like talking to other humans about their experience. Having said that, I want to ask you, because I didn't realize this, uh, or sort of maybe I did realize this. I, I have it, between food and music and reading, I owe a lot of Creole artists and cultural um, cultural memory makers to a lot of my everyday enjoyment. I mentioned Jelly Roll Morton. I'll leave it there with Jelly Roll Morton. But I will also add Alice Moore Dunbar Nelson. The, the writer or what have you, uh, as someone who's a Creole, who whose work I appreciate. Who are some Creole artists that are meaningful to you? And by art, listen, culinary arts, visual arts, um, photography, music, writing, dance, whatever, you, you, go for it. Well, I'm glad you asked me this. Uh, Leah Chase is 
one uh, culinary artist who I remember, um, she's no longer uh, with us, but Leah Chase was a Creole chef and a business owner, a businesswoman who contributed in her way to the civil rights movement um, by housing and feeding freedom riders and people who were engaging in civil rights resistance. So I, I think let's remember Leah Chase. Let's remember Harold Bakke. Mm. Um, Harold Bakke was a photographer here in New Orleans. He, I think his, his photographs are, are housed at Loyola University in New Orleans. Harold Bakke was a talented, talented photographer in New Orleans. Along with Harold Bakke, I would say Arthur Beidou, and Floristine Peralt Collins, they were both photographers. Harold Bakke is more is modern. He just passed uh, maybe about four, three or four years ago. But Arthur Beidou, he was uh, um, Booker T. Washington's primary uh, photographer, um, and he uh, worked a lot in New Orleans. Floristine Peralt Collins was a woman photographer, maybe one of the one of the first. African descended women photographers, woman photographers in the United States. And lastly, I would name Sybil Kine, who we spoke of before, a poet, musician, folklorist, historian herself. Sybil Kine was really an important voice for preserving Creole languages and Creole literature very, very important scholar and artist herself. Yeah. And I would encourage listeners to pick up uh, her book, which is kind of an anthology of Creole essays. Uh, and this Creole, listen, Sybil, Sybil Kine, and look that up and, and Google, um, put Creole in the Google and you'll come back with a, a, a great book. She also wrote a book of poetry called Gumbo People. Okay. I would I would encourage folks to read that too, Gumbo People. And it's bilingual. It's in English and French. So, all right, Leah Chase. All right, and you. So you mentioned cultural contributors. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think that's always really important. And you are a an artist too. You work with um, be, you do bead work, right? Yes, I'm a bead worker, and so bead working is is a is an art that comes to us from both our African um, ancestors, as well as our indigenous native native ancestors. I have some, like some of my pieces that are here oh, on the wall. Wonderful, yes. Um, but yes, I, I make these uh, portraits out of uh, ribbon and textiles and, and sequins as a way of venerating my ancestors, but also a way of venerating Louisiana and Creole ancestors as well. So I can't put my hand on it right now because I love my wife and I both love sort of the Mardi Gras Indian culture and the beadwork. And I have some pieces that I got at the Backstreet Cultural Museum when it was May. I don't know if it's still there or not, but I love sort of New Orleans. It's technically in the United States, but culturally it is someplace else. And I, I listened and it's and it's way, way more than the French Quarter. Uh, yes. So, so and it's and it's rich. And I will say this: you cannot understand the United States without understanding Louisiana and South Carolina 
and without understanding New Orleans and Charleston. That's Mark Dawson's take on that. I, I think you understand those two cities. You will understand insurance. You will understand laws. You will understand real estate. You will understand music. You will understand so much if you dig into those 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 places. Dr. Wendy Godan, what does it mean to live well? I think uh, for me, it is to remember impermanence. Mm. To remember that impermanence and change is everything. So when I remember that everything around me will change as it, and is in the process of change constantly, uh, it helps me to put everything into a different context, a context of compassion, a context of equanimity. Yes, I would say change and impermanence, that remembering that and holding that would be my my answer to living well. All right. Well, thank you for that. All right. So you you migrated from California back to Louisiana, your ancestral home, uh, there That's in right. New Orleans. Mardi Gras or Jazz Fest? Which one? You only had to do one. Oh, Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. Why? <laughs> Oh gosh, I don't want to say anything negative, but for me, Jazz Fest is uh it's it's so contained and the it's hot and it's dusty. And I like that Mardi Gras is 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 citywide. Um and there are so many different kinds of parades and activities. You could go to a, a major parade or you can go to a neighborhood truck parade. And there are so many options. For me, it's it's much more liberating. <laughs> no offense to those who love Jazz Fest. Got it, got it, got it. And so of the crews, uh, second line groups, what have you, what, what are your sort of favorites or most memorable? Oh my gosh. I can't really name a favorite. Gosh, I, I feel like the there's a the the crew of red beans yeah. uh that uh that i i've enjoyed in the past and then there's a new crew the crew of mung beans which is the vietnamese um american uh mardi gras uh crew that's brand new they just paraded this year and i love that our vietnamese family and friends and kin they are joining the Mardi Gras tradition by creating their own crew, the crew of Mung Beans. And I just love that. That's awesome. That's awesome. And finally, sort of, if we were talking about Louisiana, music from Louisiana, Cajun, Creole, jazz, blues, whatever, what have you, who are your favorite Louisiana musicians or musical acts? Um, I don't listen to a lot of Louisiana music, but if I play Louisiana music in class, I would probably play Zydeco music as Zydeco music is Creole, Creole music. And I also have been guilty of listening to Dr. John. <laughs> oh, yeah, listen, that's, don't, nothing, no, no guilt associated with that or, or Zydeco. Zydeco is a, is a, um, it's an interesting musical form. Yeah. And I, uh, I live in, I divide my time between New Orleans and, um, Acadiana. And so 
this in Acadiana, I live in a community where Zydeco was was born. And so there is a Zydeco festival and Zydeco is really the not just the music, but a Zydeco is an event. And so people can say, oh, do you want to go to Zydeco? <laughs> and I'm just learning about this now, how rich this uh, this tradition is. Yeah. Um, so when we went to Brazil, what I found is that Samba is an event. It's also the music and it's the dance and it's also a form of resistance and all of those things. So so I, I didn't about um uh, Zydeco. So, so you said you don't listen to Louisiana music. Which, which, what music do you listen to? I listen to um, hip hop. I listen to electronica. I listen to eighties, uh, new wave. Those are the three. I guess the three very different <laughs> forms of music right. that I listen to. All right, all right. Well, very yeah. good. Well, <laughs> listen. Uh, we really appreciate you, and I appreciate your unique voice and contributing to to the culture and and helping to inform us but definitely looking for your book and thank you for the time you've spent with us here i think it, it's, it's certainly been very informative uh for me and so we really appreciate you oh thank you so much for the invitation this was really a pleasure all right thank you, thank you. Thank you. And everyone else, you know, listen to the announcements afterwards and you can always support our work uh, by buying me a coffee. That's buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. If I don't buy coffee, we will buy books. That's what the show runs off of, coffee and books. So we appreciate you. And if nothing else, listen, share, discuss and act. And uh, thank you until next week. Bye. The Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash Parlay in All Blue. Remember to like the show, leave a review, and share it. It helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us. If you have questions, comments, or show ideas, please email us at mark at the parlayinallblue.com. Finally, remember to follow us on social media. And thanks, be well, and we out.